Hello, my name is Lisa McCarthy and you're listening to MacCast, the podcast that digs into the research, knowledge and expertise from across Manchester Metropolitan University and how it is transforming the world around us. In this month's episode, we will be speaking to Jonathan Gricks, a Professor of Sport, Policy and Politics at Manchester Metropolitan University Institute of Sport, about the legacy of the FIFA World Cup in Qatar, the most controversial major sporting event in recent memory. Professor Gricks has published widely on the politics of these sports mega events, governance, and in particular on why governments invest in sport and the rationale for hosting them. We'll also be hearing from Dr Katie Jones, a research fellow from the university's Decent Work and Productivity Research Centre, about the first major independent study into employers' worries about the universal credit system and labour market policies around that. Then we'll be finishing with New Year's resolutions with senior lecturer in psychology Dr Joe Keenan, who'll be sharing some insight with us into why, come February, many of us have abandoned our good intentions made at the start of the year, and he'll have some tips on what we can do to help us stick to them. So, up first, what kind of legacy has the FIFA World Cup left? Jess Marsh speaks to Jonathan Griggs now that the dust has settled on the tournament. The FIFA World Cup in Qatar was one of the most controversial politicised tournaments in history. Twelve years after it was granted hosting rights, the tournament was finally played in winter 2022, but not without ongoing questions over the financial and human cost of hosting the World Cup and the unusual timing of being held mid-season to avoid extreme heat. Now, almost two months on from Argentina lifting the trophy, what happens next? I asked Professor Jonathan Griggs about its legacy. Now, legacies are always difficult to talk about this closely after an event, but I guess the first one we can say with some confidence is that this was the uh, first sort of sports mega event to be hosted in the Arab world. And that in itself is a legacy because it could lead, you know, in the future to more potential hosts in the in that part of the, uh, the world. Uh, the second one is, and that's quite an interesting one, is that you don't really need to be um, a football nation to successfully host a World Cup. And that hasn't been the case before, because they usually go to places that have some sort of football pedigree, um, where this clearly wasn't. Uh, and finally, I'd say it's pro- one legacy for me, because I work in sport and politics, is probably the extent to which it's highlighted how both... Uh, politics and sport and the economy are so inextricably bound up uh, with one another. And when we think about legacy, is it kind of short-lived? You know, it's been more than a month since the tournament ended and I'm not sure that conversations have continued. Do you think they will continue? You know, what usually happens after a, a mega event? Well, what normally happens, to answer your second question first, what normally happens is uh, interest dies down um, and really the focus of the world media moves on. And I didn't think that was going to happen this time, but I must admit that I think it has because it's only a month ago that Argentina took the uh, trophy. And now I've not read anything about Qatar in the last couple of weeks. So I think the focus is already moving on to, and that, that's what we say, because there's so many of these sports mega events. It looks, uh, they're looking beyond, they're looking for 2023, 2024. They're looking for the Olympics in Paris. I think some of the key questions and key aspects that were raised around human rights abuses and you know, whether such a, a tournament ought to be hosted in, in uh, a country like Qatar, uh, they, they seem to have died down completely. Absolutely. And I think in... Like you say, in any mega event, the media always look to scrutinise 
the host country before the tournament and but this time it was kind of particularly important can it make a difference can the media discussions you know the athlete activism that we saw all the discussions in the lead up can it make a difference well uh Again, this one was unique because of the not only the amount of media scrutiny, but the period of time. Because obviously um, Qatar was chosen as a host uh, 10 years prior to the Games, which is unprecedented. It's not normal. So you had a very long time of sort of penetrative media uh, coverage. Now, will it change anything? I think... Uh, again, we need to wait a little bit because they have they have uh, during that period of time we've seen sl- some slight changes to the kafala system, the sort of uh, workers' rights in in Qatar. Whether that will continue to develop or whether those rights will continue to be upheld or even improve, we need to wait. But you, know, you could argue that without the media coverage, perhaps that wouldn't have um, taken place. Uh, now, the political activism you you noted. Jess is really interesting because that is probably at the highest I've ever seen it um, during the uh, Qatar World Cup. And I think, although, you know, we've we've suggested that they're not talking about Qatar much now, but I think that political activism is likely to continue into other sporting events, in particular around um, LGBT, as I've mentioned, LGBTQ+, but also around things like um, the war in Ukraine. We've seen lots of protests. And so I would guess that that's probably likely to continue. And quite rightly, we talk about all these things and the human rights and LGBT issues and whether we're going to see any changes. But thinking purely about the sport, you know, this event had countries from all over the world coming together, celebrating together. It was safe. It was friendly. It had a nice atmosphere. And it's kind of almost a bit different to what we've seen at other mega events if we think about what happened at the Euros when we hosted that. So I think, you know, some would say it's not entirely negative. There have been some good parts to the World Cup as well. Absolutely. And uh, one thing you could add there is that it's been much more uh, family friendly because, and some say, and some do argue, and, and probably quite rightly, because of the uh, lack of alcohol at the event. Now, you know, it was outrage at first because they cancelled at the very last minute the contract to, to sell beer in the stadiums, but it probably turned out all right. You know, you didn't, there was no trouble. It was very friendly, as you said, it was good atmosphere. And that, that could also be a legacy, you know, getting back to your first question, because it does mean, or it could mean, that if it's a more friendly place to be, you'd get different people into the stadium, and more females, more families, which has got to be a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and thinking about Qatar as a country now, we know that Qatar had an image that it wanted to portray. Can you talk a bit about what they kind of hoped for and maybe whether you think that they achieved that? I think, well, I think uh, not so much the image, but I think they first very uh, the very first thing they wanted to put themselves on the map. Uh, and if you'd have asked me, I thought about 10 years ago where Qatar was, I would have struggled. And now I think pretty much everyone knows where Qatar is. So that that has been very, very successful, you know. And given that Qatar is basically the size of Yorkshire, it's a tiny place. So they really have put themselves on the map through this event. So that's that's the first thing I think they were set out to do. I think they wanted to show themselves as uh, a nation that are are sort of ready, capable uh, of hosting a major uh, sports mega event and a hospitable nation, you know, to all those different countries coming from around the world. And I, I think they have been successful in that. And 
that probably leads to that wasn't your initial question, but it probably leads to what they're after. Uh, and I think they probably want the big one. They will try and host uh, an Olympics in the future. And I guess my next question was going to be how will they benefit from hosting the World Cup? But I guess you know that that's it. <laughs> Yeah, those two questions are tied together, aren't they? Because uh, they've benefited greatly from the exposure that, you know, they are on the map. Everyone knows where they are. They will be in a much better position to um, uh, bid for something like like an Olympics or, you know, uh, another major event. Uh, and, and I must say that uh, the final, I know it's sport, but the final was so good and they were so lucky that it was good uh, because people, the attention is immediately turned away from all the negative things because it was so memorable, that they benefit also greatly from that. And what happens, I think, and this is a little bit more complex, but you, I think a country like Qatar becomes sort of normalised. You know, you're doing business with Qatar is not so bad as perhaps it was thought of as before. So that, that sort of process of normalisation over time is very beneficial for them. Yeah, I think that's one of the kind of unique things about sport, and in particular football, that people are so passionate about it that you know they're almost willing to brush things under the yeah. carpet to enjoy yeah um, sorry on that you know how do you think because um, uh, if you think of football for example uh, many football teams are owned by foreign um, owners that are in a country like Newcastle Saudi Arabia Qatar own uh, Paris Saint-Germain if you ask their fans I don't think they're actually they're not too worried about that because uh, Man City of course Manchester City are owned uh, but yeah, foreign owner, they, they don't care as long as they're winning. Yeah, and there's a lot of money in it, isn't there? So a lot, you know. there's an awful lot of money in it. So what does the future hold for FIFA? You know, will they ever host it in such a controversial setting again? And then also for Qatar, obviously you did mention that you think you know they'll go for the big events again. Yeah, uh, FIFA. FIFA's interesting because one of the most unusual things was seeing FIFA defend Qatar. I don't know if you remember that from Infantino. He had a he had a press conference. He was just moaning about everyone critiquing Qatar, and that I've never seen that before. And people talk about sport shouldn't be mixed with politics. I mean, he was really mixing, really getting getting involved. <laughs> and so maybe there'll be calls for reform of uh, FIFA, so they're not so involved like that, or more likely they just carry on and they will go. Uh, where the money is, because they, they made, an, I think it was an extra a billion on top of what they usually make. So the future for them, yeah, I can't see them being reformed, actually. Now, the future for Qatar, I think the future is the, yeah, the, the idea would be to continue their sort of sports investment strategy, one of which is uh, these mega events and, uh, and going for the big uh, Olympics, as I said, but also continue with their sort of investment in sporting infrastructure and sports teams. Um, something that they've been diversifying, and, and Saudi Arabia, of course, has been diversifying for years. They've got so much money, they need to put it somewhere. Yeah, and like you say, it's maybe a bit too early to see what what will happen, what the legacy will be, but uh, time will tell, I guess. A fascinating insight there from Jonathan Griggs. Now, away from the world of sport, Dan Cottam turns to the world of work and caught up with Dr Katie Jones about the findings of her recent study into the universal credit system and the impact of that on employers. Universal credit has been hit in the headlines ever since its introduction in 2013. Much of the media coverage has focused on the effects that the new benefits system has had on people with a low income or who are out of work. But how are businesses and organisations across the UK 
who employ the workers receiving universal credit, coping with the system. A new research project has explored employer views and experiences for the first time, with some very interesting results. I start by asking Dr Katie Jones from the university's business school about the project and its aims. So this is the first major independent research project focused on employers' views and experiences of universal credit and the active labour market policies that underpin it. Uh, so the aims of the project are fourfold. Uh, firstly, we're interested in how universal credit and the active labour market policies that underpin it are understood and experienced by employers. We're interested in how these policies impact on UK businesses, if at all, <laughs> including the way that they recruit, retain and progress their staff. We also were interested in how these policies uh, vary in different sectors. Uh, so in our research, we focus specifically on social care, hospitality, and retail and warehousing. And finally, we wanted to explore how agencies like the Job Centre can work effectively with employers, which ultimately we think would lead to better outcomes for individuals and the wider economy. So we've spoken to a real range of people, um, you know, owners of businesses ranging from your sort of micro uh, micro business on the high street uh, all the way to multinational sort of warehousing organisations as well. So it's been a really fascinating project to to um, to have led. And what were the main findings from the project? And what what does this tell us about employers' experience of, of labour market policies? So we found that employers are impacted by these policies in different ways. So some we cover quite a lot of ground in the report, but some of the key things that we found were that employers were overwhelmingly quite critical of the UK's work-first approach to active labour market policy. So this approach has been with us for a while under successive governments and basically emphasises moving people into any job quickly, usually through requiring people in receipt of unemployment benefits to make a high volume of applications. Now, this inevitably results in a high volume of applications that employers have got to spend time and resource managing. And unfortunately, from uh, the employers that we spoke to, these are these applications often aren't appropriate to the role. So employers want to hire people who both want and are able to do their jobs. So taking on their feedback, we recommend that policymakers place much more emphasis on personalised employment support that places more emphasis on the quality of the quantity of applications that job seekers are making. Did a lot of the findings back up maybe some of the preconceptions that people have about employer experience? I think, actually, perhaps the most surprising thing was just how much employers had to say. And for them to give up an average of an hour to talk to us about their views and experiences of this policy, I think really underlines the importance of including them in policy development and debate, Um, especially given new policy development relating to universal credit, which will potentially require people who are in work. So this is their staff, people who are in work and claiming universal credit to continue to engage with job centres and ask their employers for higher pay or more hours or be required to take on additional jobs or alternative jobs. This has real implications for businesses. So we really need to understand more about the realities that they're facing and the extent to which they're able to support people to move into and progress in work before these new policies are rolled out. One of our recommendations is that employer representative organisations should be more um, 
should be more proactive around this agenda. Um, it is easy for it to slip down the priorities list when um, businesses are facing so many other challenges right now. Uh, but we hope this research has, has helped um, to bring the issue up a few notches. And that leads me on to my next question on what impact you hope the research will have and how maybe it's that you've already started to influence policy and speak into those major stakeholders that, that, that can influence policy. Absolutely. So I think the research has already had an impact. So um, in and of itself, we've got businesses and business representative organisations to that start thinking and talking about universal credit and how policy should be supporting people to move into and progress in work. And I really hope that uh, the conversations here continue. Um, we've also been really delight- delighted about the interest that we've already had to date from policymakers. So we've taken off invitations to present to our uh, findings to uh, officials in the DWP and to the Universal Credit All-Party Parliamentary Group. There is a real need for policy change and it's, it's great to see that there's a lot of policy interest at the moment across the political spectrum about the need to reform our employment support system and our report certainly provides a lot of ideas uh, on how to do that and we'll continue to take up any opportunity to disseminate our f- findings to policymakers, to practitioners, to employers, uh, anyone who's interested in improving, in improving the system uh, to help people to move into and progress in work. Thanks Dan and Katie, that's a really interesting study that has certainly attracted a lot of attention. And finally, How are you getting on with your New Year's resolutions? It's perhaps not surprising to hear that by February, a huge 80% of us have given up on New Year's resolutions. I chatted to Manchester Met psychologist Dr Jo Keenan about why this is and what we can do to stay on track. So what are we doing wrong when we set our New Year's resolutions? Why do so many of us abandon them so quickly? I think um, largely we try to make too ambitious targets. So um, if we haven't engaged in a positive health behaviour for a while... We try to do everything at once as opposed to taking small incremental steps to achieve those targets. So we might have a long term goal of maybe engaging with high intensity physical activity three to four times a week um, over a period, a longer period of time, which may be about a year's time. But to achieve that long term goal, we need to break that down into those smaller, more realistic targets of maybe going to the gym once or twice a week and doing some medium or low intensity exercise and to slowly build up to um, achieving that broader long-term target. So whatever our resolutions might be, what are the things we can do to help us stick to them? So to make us stick to those resolutions, a key thing for us to think about is, one, um, tell others. So think about getting that social support from friends, family members, or creating or gaining role models of people that you want to aspire to be like. Um, Those people can give you those instructions, those healthy psychological resources to um, encourage you to keep meeting those small goals. Um, I would say as well, if you know anybody who's got a shared um, long-term goal, work at achieving that together as that social support can help you when you have those periods of doubt of um, actually, I don't want to feel like doing that. I don't feel like doing this today. When they can actually help you, encourage you to share that goal and share that long-term reward. And we wake up on the 1st of January and suddenly decide what we're going to do differently. Is that perhaps not the best way to go about it? Um, definitely not. I think behaviours are so complex um, and they actually um, occur in systems. So you'll have loads and loads of interrelated behaviours um, that actually think about a large term topic, either exercise or smoking or financially saving more money. 
Um, so actually, we're focusing on those targeting small, specific, measurable behaviours that allows us to achieve those goals. And to focus on those, we need to prepare. So we need to make sure that we've got those practical resources. Um, so if I'm going to give up smoking, do I have something that I can replace that nicotine intake with? If I'm going to be going to the gym, have I prepared to get a gym membership and saved the financial need or the financial strains of doing so? So all of these things take time, uh, but they also take um, psychological resources as well. We need to be motivated to make these changes. Do we feel competent that we can achieve these changes? And a lot of that is down to our self-efficacy as well. So the extent to which we believe we can achieve this change. Um, so both practical and psychological elements influence the extent to which we can prepare for engaging in a behaviour change. Because behaviour change is hard, um, it's complex, and if we don't have that preparation, then we're likely to fail and give up on those long-term targets. So what can we do when we do have a setback? Um, to be kind and expect them. So they say that um, Rome wasn't built in a day and behaviour change can't be achieved um, straight away all the time. So it's quite likely that we will relapse. So if we're going to try and have our long-term goal of reducing our cigarette intake, is expect that maybe in the short term, we might not always achieve that short-term goal. But be kind and allow yourself the opportunity to reflect upon maybe what were the reasons why I relapsed? What was the reasons why I didn't achieve that short-term goal? And what are the practical, realistic things that we can do and adapt in order to make sure that we don't fail or relapse in the future? Does it matter when we start to try and change our behaviour? Is it too late to start now in February? Definitely not too late to start now, but the key thing to remember is that we need to be ready and prepared to make that change. And largely, we need to make an autonomous decision to do so. So it doesn't quite help us when other people tell us that you, you should change this behaviour now if you're not ready to make that change yourself. So thinking about what are those pros and cons of thinking about this expected outcome? What am I going to lose in the, the short term to gain in the long term? But also thinking about what I, what is that ideal resolution at the end? So does it have to be a New Year's resolution or just wanting to have a long-term goal to be healthier or to be more financially stable? And just having that preparation of knowing when autonomously you want to make that change yourself. Thanks. And one last question I have to ask you, do you make New Year's resolutions? I used to until I um, learned more about behavioural science. And now I take those long-term approaches. And so recently I've given up smoking, for instance, and that was a short-term goal. But thinking about what are those small things I could do to achieve that. And I didn't start that on New Year's, New Year's Day. Thanks, Joe. It's good to hear how we can make a positive change, even now in February. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Metcast, the official podcast from Manchester Metropolitan University. We'll be bringing you a new episode each month, so if you want to hear more from our experts, students and partners, as well as details on the latest research from across the university, be sure to subscribe to us on your chosen podcast platform. Until next time, thank you from me, Lisa McCarthy, and the rest of the team for listening.